Today's episode is sponsored by Tigo. For most of us, indemnity insurance is one of our biggest costs of practice. But when was the last time you took a look at the coverage and compared your premium with others? Many of us are still with the same insurer we joined in med school or intern year. Thousands of doctors have made the switch to Tigo and benefited from their personalised approach to pricing. You will also get an extra two months free in your first year. If you are new to private practice, you might even qualify for four years of discounted premiums. Tigo offers competitive premiums, quality cover and 24-7 support backed by top medico legal advisors. Get a free quote and discover why thousands of doctors are insured by Tigo by visiting tigo.com.au. Hello listeners and welcome to Deep Breaths, a podcast covering topics related to the Part 2 anaesthetic exam. I'm Dr. Kate Steele. And I'm Dr. Kate McCrossan. And today's episode is Shock to the System Part 2, where we will continue our discussion on the perioperative management of cardiac implantable devices. As always, in this podcast, we represent our own views and not those of our employers or ANSCA. So in part one of this series, we covered the devices that are included under the umbrella term of cardiac implantable electronic devices. So let's now move on to the guidelines. These are an updated version of the British Heart Rhythm Society's 2016 guidelines and are the most recent set of international guidelines published to date. Of note, they are more recent than previous guidelines published by both the European Society of Cardiology and the Joint American Heart Rhythm Society and American Society of Anesthesiologists Consensus Statement. These guidelines consist of 10 recommendations that, in our opinion, are very straightforward and easy to understand. They also don't represent too great a deviation away from the way that we traditionally approach patients with implanted cardiac devices perioperatively. Mm. Guideline 1 states as follows. In people with cardiac implantable electronic devices, electromagnetic interference in the surgical environment may lead to an inappropriate pacemaker function or implantable cardiac defibrillator shocks. Now, generally speaking, both pacemakers and ICDs have a high degree of tolerance to electrical and magnetic interference, but problems may arise if either the energy level of a nearby field is high or if it has a frequency that is close to that generated by the heart. In these instances, a variety of things can happen, for example, inhibition of pacing, induction of fixed rate pacing, inappropriate rapid pacing, a software reset, or triggering of defibrillation shocks. Often interference is only transient, with the device returning to normal as the interference ceases. Powerful fields like gamma radiation or MRIs are likely to have permanent effects on either device or lead function, though. In the surgical setting, potential sources of electromagnetic interference include intraoperative MRI, diathermy or electrocautery, nerve stimulators, transcutaneous electrical nerve stimulation or TENS, radiofrequency scanners for surgical instrument detection, radiofrequency ablation devices, surgical magnetic drapes, and magnetic anchoring and guidance systems that can be used in laparoscopic and endoscopic surgery. So this is where a strong external magnet is used to manipulate the position of an internally positioned instrument. This leads us to the guidelines' second recommendation. Identification of these devices at pre-operative assessment is important to allow appropriate precautions to be taken. Again, generally speaking, patients are well-educated as to the importance of mentioning that they have implantable devices in situ. Patients are often issued with a card providing information about the device and its manufacturer. Guideline 3 states... Preoperative assessment teams should ensure that the CIED has been under regular follow-up and contact the usual cardiology team. 
Remote device follow-up should be regarded as in-person follow-up in patients who have normally functioning devices. When we're assessing patients with CIEDs, the following pieces of information are important to elucidate. The type of device and the manufacturer, both the implanting hospital and the follow-up hospital, the date of the last follow-up, including the date of the last device interrogation, if the device is at or approaching battery depletion, if the device is part of a clinical investigation and whether rest- restrictions may apply, and the device location. So most devices are implanted in the right or left prepectoral region, but some may be located in the lateral chest wall and very rarely in the abdomen. Additional device checks preoperatively are not always necessary as long as a device check is not overdue. Keep in mind that many devices are now under remote follow-up and that device interrogation can occur without the patient having to be face-to-face with clinicians. Remote threshold checks should be considered the same as face-to-face checks, and a patient with stable lead parameters doesn't need additional checking preoperatively. Good to know. Mm. On to guideline four. General precautions should be followed when any person with a cardiac implantable electronic device has a procedure which may involve electromagnetic interference, including monitoring, diathermy plate positioning, use of short bursts of diathermy, and the availability of appropriate emergency equipment. A pacemaker detecting electromagnetic interference signal may interpret this as arising from the patient instead. This is understandably more of a concern for patients that are pacemaker dependent, where the incorrect assumption of an underlying electrical rhythm will mean that pacing is withheld. In addition to this, for devices that utilise an impedance-based rate-responsive pacing function like, for example, minute ventilation sensors, interference from diathermy or manipulation of the device can result in inappropriate high heart rate pacing, which in most individuals is unlikely to lead to clinical harm, but is obviously not good. The risk with ICDs is that electromagnetic interference may be misinterpreted by the device as a ventricular arrhythmia with inappropriate initiation of anti-tachycardia therapy or defibrillation. Inappropriate shocks from a device are associated with increased mortality, and even in anaesthetized individuals, this should be avoided where possible. Patients with loop recorders and implanted monitors may interpret electromagnetic interference as an arrhythmia, but this will only be apparent when the device undergoes interrogation. There is no risk in this instance that shocks or aberrant pacing can occur, and generally speaking, they are considered pretty safe. That said, it may be worthwhile for these devices to undergo pre-op and post-op interrogation so as to ensure that any device memory isn't filled with episodes of detected electromagnetic interference. Device manufacturers either contraindicate the use of surgical diathermy or give strong warnings against its use, particularly the use of monopolar diathermy. Where diathermy or electrocautery use is unavoidable, and if it is used at a site remote from the device, then the risk of EMI leading to inappropriate device function is considered low. Additionally, the use of bipolar diathermy should be considered in preference to monopolar, although there are still small risks associated with this. Recommendation number five states that, and I quote, specific procedures will require differing levels of device reprogramming, and this may vary according to whether the person is dependent on the pacemaker function of their device. At this point, we need to clarify the definition of pacemaker dependent. The Heart Rhythm Society defines pacemaker dependence as either no intrinsic rhythm of greater than 40 beats per minute or hemodynamic instability with the intrinsic heart rhythm. Most patients are not pacing dependent by this definition, and if their device function is temporarily interrupted, it is unlikely that they would come to serious harm. 
Patients who are pacing dependent are at a greater risk from electromagnetic interference and reprogramming to a fixed rate rhythm should be considered. Remember too that placing a magnet over these devices defaults the device to an asynchronous pacing program. In this instance, I talk to the patient's cardiologist for advice. Yes, I agree. Guideline 6 states that surgery below the umbilicus may not require implantable cardioverter defibrillator deactivation. We know that EMI is more likely to interfere with device function if it is closer to the pulse generator or the device leads. Typically, this occurs in procedures above the level of the umbilicus. For procedures where the surgery and diathermy, including the diathermy pads, are below the umbilicus, this risk is much lower, and merely monitoring without deactivating the device is reasonable. In this instance, though, a magnet should be available in the theatre, as well as easy access to the site of the device on the patient's chest. That seems pretty straightforward. Recommendation seven is that the guidance recognises that temporary magnet deactivation or programmer deactivation of therapies are both acceptable methods of deactivating defibrillators. Again, this is really reassuring for us, particularly since I'm sure there are lots of clinicians out there that may feel uncomfortable placing a magnet over an ICD perioperatively. The eighth recommendation of the guidelines is that safe magnet use requires an awareness of the importance of positioning and securing the correct clinical magnet. Now, as we've stated previously, placing a magnet over a pacemaker or ICD results in only temporary interruption of programming, and removing the magnet will trigger the resumption of normal device function. But the device will only be deactivated if you position the magnet correctly. Yeah, that is true. Now, the magnets we use clinically must be specifically designated ring or block magnets that are slightly smaller than the palm of your hand and, to be honest, quite heavy. There are a couple of things to consider when using them. First, it's important to actually place the magnet correctly over the device. For most devices like Medtronic, Boston Scientific and Biotronic, the advice is to place the magnet directly over the device. For St. Jude Medical and Abbott devices, the recommendation is that the magnet should be offset from the device, with the curve of the ring magnet positioned either over the top or bottom of the device. In other words, half on and half off the device. For Lever Nova devices, previously known as Soren devices, the magnet should be positioned off-center and slightly to the side, specifically avoiding the header of the device. And there are photos explaining all of these magnet positions with the guidelines if you'd like to check them out. I would thoroughly encourage you do it's interesting (laughs) when positioning a magnet it's important to keep in mind that the device may have migrated from the location of the original insertion scar it's also important to remember that magnets are heavy and it's easy for them to migrate away from the device if they're not secured properly the advice is to securely attach the magnet to the patient with surgical tape and it's worthwhile checking to ensure correct placement is maintained throughout In longer surgical cases greater than eight hours, biotronic ICDs will revert back to normal function at the eight-hour mark, even if the magnet remains correctly positioned. In this instance, the magnet needs to be removed and then reapplied in order for device deactivation to continue. ICDs of any brand may emit an audible alarm or beep when they are close to a strong magnetic field, including a magnet placed over the top, so don't be alarmed if this happens. And we hope it goes without saying that when you place a magnet over an ICD intraoperatively, you should consider attaching the patient to external hands-free or stick-on pads in order to manage any potential ventricular arrhythmias that develop while the device is deactivated. For patients with an ICD that also has both anti-tachycardia and anti-bradycardia programs and functions, it's important to realise that placing a magnet over the device will inhibit both the shock and the anti-tachycardia functions, but will have no effect on the anti-bradycardia functions. 
Now on to guideline number nine. Responsibility for patients remains with the clinical team responsible for the episode of care rather than cardiac physiologists and cardiology teams. The clinical team is responsible for ensuring the reactivation of devices which have been deactivated by programming. So just to reinforce this, it is our responsibility as anaesthetists to make sure our patients who have had their devices formally deactivated by cardiac scientists also have their devices formally reactivated. Ideally, this should occur as soon as possible post-procedure while the patient is fully monitored in the PACU. And our last recommendation, Guideline 10, states, Dental procedures are included and the use of ultrasound descalers is not anticipated to cause problems with cardiac devices. So finally, let's talk through everything that we should consider as anaesthetists when preparing to anaesthetise a patient with a CIED that, let's assume, has been seen in the pre-anaesthetic clinic and cleared for anaesthesia. Prior to wheeling the patient into theatre, we should have either considered or organised the following. The possible sources of EMI within your theatre or suite. The presence of a magnet within the theatre. The presence of defibrillation or external pacing equipment within the theatre and to be familiar with how to use it. And ideally, we should have a discussion with the surgeon about the use of diathermy, specifically the intended location for the diathermy use and the diathermy pad. And ideally, we want the location to both be as far away from the device and leads as possible, if able. We should also discuss whether bipolar diathermy can be used throughout the case and also set a reminder to limit its use to small, short bursts at the lowest possible energy level. Underbody diathermy electrode pads like Megadyne mats should not be used in these patients. Specific considerations for the device include, is the potential level of electromagnetic interference low enough that the device can be left to function as per normal throughout, or do you need to inactivate it for the duration of the procedure? If the plan is to leave the device functioning normally, do you have easy access to be able to place a magnet over the device in the event of interference causing the device to function inappropriately, or will positioning leave poor enough access that applying a magnet preemptively is safer? If the decision is to deactivate an ICD with a magnet, particularly if access to the chest wall will be difficult throughout the case, apply defibrillator pads prior to the prep and drape. The defibrillator pad should be positioned as far away from the device as possible and ideally in the anteroposterior position. This holds true for pacemaker deactivation too. If device programming has been altered pre-procedure, the patient should have ECG monitoring until the device is reprogrammed to its pre-operative settings. This should be done as soon as practicable, ideally in the PACU. And if there is evidence of pacemaker inhibition or inappropriate ICD therapy, notify the surgeon immediately. Diathermy should be either limited to short bursts or discontinued. If this is not practicable, consider applying a magnet to the device. Well, that brings us to the end of yet another topic. But before we say goodbye, Kate, what have you learned this week in anaesthesia? I don't know if I've learned anything, but uh, it just, it's interesting discussing this topic because I remember seeing a patient in our pre-admission clinic who had uh, a loop recorder in to try mm. to capture events, but then was having a mastectomy oh. and neither the cardiologist nor the, nor the breast surgeon had put two and two together that oh. the loop recording was sitting right where they were going to be operating. Oh. So it was just an example of having to, you know, step in and be the coordinator between two different specialties and figure out whether yeah. the breast surgeons could take the loop recorder out or whether the cardiac guys wanted to come in or, you know, how it was going to work. So yeah. a bit of emailing and all worked out well in the end, but wow. just brought back, you know, not so much learning, but it just brought back this case. So yeah. it's relevant. Yeah. yeah. How about yourself? Well, this isn't something that I learned so much, but I thought I'd actually share what I consider now to be a hilariously funny story of an interaction that I had with a patient with a pacemaker. And it's good. I can laugh about this now at the time. I was highly mortified. So the situation that I was in 
was that for the 12 months before I started anesthesia training, I was a PHO in intensive care mm-hmm. and, and I was very green. So I'd done a year as an intern, a year as a JHO, and then I was a PHO in mm-hmm. ICU. And this ICU was one where the only staff members that were on the floor were obviously the nursing staff and the other sort of allied health, but there was one PHO, which was me, mm-hmm. and a supervising consultant. And the situation is that I – and this is like my first week as well, so super green mm-hmm. – And the situation I had was that there was a patient that had a pacemaker inserted where we had withdrawn treatment Mm -hmm. and I had to go in and pronounce the patient. Now, the family had been in there and Mm. what the staff had done, and I didn't know this at the time, was they'd placed a magnet over the device so that there wasn't obvious pacing activity on the ECG so Mm -hmm. that it didn't distress the family, which is fair enough. But I didn't realise that when I went in with my metal stethoscope to listen to the chest to do the formal. (laughs) To do the formal. Story oh my gosh. And so and I was I was a bit skittish, you know, it was my first week. Mm. I don't like pronouncing patients at the mm. best of time. It just makes me feel very uncomfortable. Anyway, so I obviously checked for a pulse and then I went with my stethoscope. I reached across the patient's uh, chest with my stethoscope and the whole thing flew out of my hand and my ears and I just about died. I flew across that ICU. I flew like I haven't moved in my life. All of the nurses saw. They were losing it with laughter because I was absolutely terrified because I, in in that split Mm. second where there was movement that Mm. I didn't anticipate, I thought the patient was reanimating. Like Mm. I thought that, you know, something like out of my nightmares was coming true, which is completely ridiculous. But at the time, I thought the patient, I was so, I got such a fright. It was awful. (laughs) And, oh gosh, it took me so long to live that down. It was mortifying. And, you know, for the next 12 months, I was, you know, the girl that was scared of a magnet. So, (laughs) Well, this week's been more like storytelling and anesthesia, but that's okay. I'm sure we all have stories like this that we can now look back at and laugh. The time were kind of embarrassing. Exactly. (laughs) It's been a timely brush up of our knowledge this week on deep breaths. Don't forget to claim CPD for listening to this episode of you're a consultant or fellow. As always, if you have any questions, comments or suggestions, or you just want to say hi, you can email us on deepbreathspod at gmail.com. You can find us on most podcast platforms and following us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify makes finding new episodes easier. Thanks for listening and we hope you can join us next time on Deep Breaths.